Well, there's no problem. If you had a gun, shoot him in the head. All right, welcome back to Shoot Me Straight with Eddie Gallagher and Dave Fields. Uh, today we have a pretty awesome guest, Ray Murphy. Um, he's prior United States Marine. He's the owner of HRD Police Canine and the founder of the Warriors Healing Network. Um, I got to meet Ray, I think, what is it? I don't know how many months ago yeah. uh, when you guys came down and we did some training together here at Stronghold and uh, found out about what you do, and now we're... We're uh, doing an event next week, which I'm exci- uh, excited about to uh, raise awareness for your network and what you're doing for um, veterans, combat veterans, and law enforcement. So uh, welcome to the show. Um, it's glad to have you here. And it's, uh, start off telling us about yourself, you know. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you, guys. I really appreciate you guys having me here. Um, I'm excited for the training this weekend, too. Yeah. So. <laughs> be good. Exactly. Well, uh, take it back to the beginning. I grew up outside of Chicago. Um, I didn't have probably the best childhood. Um, there was a lot of violence in the household, um, like a lot of people experience. Um, I did hear later on in life about things that happened to you prior to from zero to seven years old and really discounted, I guess, what that would actually do to you later on in life. Um, when I grew up, I had my parents fighting all the time. Um, you know, I even had my foot broken by my father one time, thrown down to the ground, and uh, I had to lie to the hospital staff about what happened. Said I fall, I fell, and you know this is the type of stuff I had to endure. You know until I got into high school age. You know, and when I started to grow up, I <clears throat> got into football and wrestling, and at some point I decided I didn't want to take that kind of crap anymore, and started the fight back. And obviously, that didn't um, lead for a peaceful household, um, which led to me being being homeless for about eight months right after high school. And this is where I decided to take my life in my own hands and uh, join the Marine Corps. Was, uh, I mean, your your dad was abusive the whole time. um, Yeah. And physically and just really physical abuse for the most part. And I, I do remember. Um, I don't remember it being alcohol related. I do. Rem- I think it was generationally related. Mm-hmm. Um, I do remember him talking about that kind of household in his growing up, um, which is not an excuse, but that's that's just how it came about. Um, but immediately after high school, that came to a head, and uh, you know, I spent eight months, you know, couch hopping and uh, just trying to figure out what the hell to do with myself, and uh, I eventually joined the Marine Corps. Um, (laughs) so I went to another nurturing environment. Yes. So I'm sure. Yeah. So, but quite honestly, I mean, that, that definitely changed the trajectory for, for me. I mean, I learned to become self-sufficient I was confident, um, which also, you know, led into a lot of successful businesses and things that came up later on in life. But I'm glad that experience happened because it kind of shaped who I am today. Did, did you, when you were in high school, did you like have any thoughts of becoming a Marine then? Or was it, was it a, something that you were thinking about doing or was it one of those decisions like, all right, I'm, I'm going to do this now. Yeah, no, I think it was just a necessity at the time. Uh-huh. You know, I didn't grow up thinking I'm going to go serve my country. I was too busy, you know, having fun at keg parties yeah. and doing stupid things. Um, but that being said, when I did go in, I was all in. Yeah. Uh, I was really about it. Um, 
I spent, uh, I was an 0331, uh, but then I spent the vast majority of my four years in as a, in a state platoon for 1st Battalion, 2nd Marines, so the mm-hmm. scout sniper platoons. Yep. So I've always been drawn to that that type of uh, lifestyle and mission, I guess. Did you, um, so how long, so you were 0331, what, what MOS is that? Is that a... It's a machine gunner machine at the gunner. time, yeah. Okay, yeah. I know things have changed, but yeah, it's machine gunner at the time, and then uh, I deployed to Desert Shield, Desert Storm, so it's been quite a while for me since I've been in uniform, but uh, that's where I started off. Did you, uh, when you were a machine gunner and then you decided to go to State Platoon, did you have to take a uh, in-dock yep. process? Was it, what was it, about a month long? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, within, definitely. Within the battalion? Yes, it was battalion level, and it wasn't... Um, anything extended it wasn't like buds or anything like that but we definitely had a period of time that you had to kind of prove your worth to being there and then the whole time you're in state platoon you're you're vying for a spot to go to sniper school yep um so yeah you have to perform and you have to do all those things while you were in so yeah i remember so i same route i did you know i was obviously a corpsman um and then did a first platoon with the uh grunt unit and alpha company one eight and then decided to take the screening to go to state platoon, which yep. was, uh, we came back from deployment and the screening started right then. And I remember like everybody else was on leave or just chilling and like with the rest of us, there's probably like 30, you know, that were trying out. We're just getting our shit pushed in for a month by the guys in the uh, state platoon and just making sure they got the right individuals into that platoon. Yep. Um, but it was, I remember being pretty arduous. Uh, you know, it was like no breaks. Um, yep. And you, they made you earn it. Everybody wants to do sniper shit till it's time to do sniper shit. Yeah. Which is <laughs> laying for hours at a time in a ghillie suit and when it's 90 degrees in Camp Lejeune, you know, getting eaten by every insect under the sun. Oh, um, yeah. A little stone bay. Exactly. So. Mm-hmm. Nice. Good times. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, I went to the Marine Corps. I spent four years in, um. Yeah, eventually got out, went to college for criminal justice, thought I wanted to become a cop, and then I realized that they didn't make any money, so I didn't go that route. <laughs> and then, um, you know, I, I then kind of the, the trauma train started <laughs> inadvertently. You know, a lot of people, you know, when you're talking about trauma, and, you know, I started a, a veteran uh, charity organization, would assume this is all war-related and things like that. Believe it or not, that's not how it happened for me. Uh, I became a skydiver and a base jumper. Uh, I've got several thousand skydiver skydives. I was a freefall instructor, and I've been several hundred base jumps all over the world. Wow. Nice. Um, during that time, though, I mean, when you're playing with big boy games, there's big boy rules that come along with that. And, you know, you start losing people, you know. And I had to sit down one day and really calculate how many people I lost in my, that, my life and, you know, the – I think the number is sitting around 34, 33, which is a pretty sizable body count for anybody to have uh, people come in your life and then just be gone. Is that a lot of that in the skydiving community? Most of it. Yeah. yeah and, and base jumping, especially yeah. the base jumping community. And this, you know, it was earlier years before um, Red Bull and uh, YouTube and anything like that. It was a little more of an underground undertaking. Uh, but base- that's. A base jump is you jump off the rocks and, like, throw your parachute up in the air? So, base is an acronym. It stands for buildings, antennas, spans, and earth. So, Uh it's fixed object parachuting. 
So it could be from things that are really low, or you could be jumping giant 3,000-foot walls in Norway. You know, it's just anything, just not out of an airplane. And the gear is different, and everything else is different, and obviously a little more high stakes. Um, is it where you hold a parachute and throw it out? or Sometimes, just- if it's super low. Um, you know, I've jumped several buildings in the middle of the night. You know, <laughs> if we're talking, you know, 007 stuff, picking locks, and, you know, there's several buildings I've made entry to, and uh, you, know, you jump and you land, you've got a car waiting for you, and you're out of there in the yeah. middle of the night. So it's... What, uh, what drove you to get into skydiving and then obviously into base jumping skydiving i just always wanted to do mm-hmm. and end up you know i did so many of them it actually became boring <laughs> so i think that's what the the base jumping started to kind of reach out to me and that's something i i sort of gravitate towards i guess the underground nature of it at the time and then uh obviously the, the excitement levels the through adrenaline the roof, rush yeah well, for sure yeah and some of the beautiful places that have been to do it you know, I've been out lucky enough to jump from Angel Falls in Venezuela. I've jumped a 1,200-foot hole in the ground in Mexico, you know, a subterranean-based jump. I've been part of a world record in Moscow, jumping off the Austin Kino Tower with 30 other people. So I've done some pretty interesting stuff, but, you know, it came at a price. Um, so, you know, I did years and years of that type of stuff, you know, kind of redlining lifestyle just kind of live for today you know who knows if tomorrow's coming and after a while it started to wear you know you're going out on these european based adventures or whatever and i'm wondering which one of my friends isn't going to come back and that happened a few times i spent a month in baffin island jumping in the arctic circle up there and you know i came home and a successful trip and there's some guys that stayed a little longer than me and i came back and my wife had a look in her face and she told me that, uh, you know, one of my guys that was on my expedition died literally the day after I was there. You know, and they never found him. I mean, there's nobody to call when you're in yeah. the Arctic Circle. I mean, he's up in the rocks somewhere in, <clears throat> in Baffin Island, and it, it really sucks. So, you know, that, that started to kind of build over time. And then, believe it or not, it was – I lost a dog. Uh, my dog, Nero, uh, he was my first German Shepherd – um, he was my ride or die dog. He was just shy of his fifth birthday. He had a colonic torsion, which is essentially bloat, but it's kind of further down the intestinal tract. And when he died, that's is where, you know, everything just came apart. You know, I felt different. Um, I was acting different. I didn't recognize who I was anymore. I also didn't recognize what it was. Um, yeah. you know, I always associated PTSD as being something that, uh, you know, you've got some horrific incident occurs and bam, you get PTSD, which can happen for some people. In my case, it was a case of, I guess, what's called trauma stacking. When you've got all these events over time start to wear in your your nervous system. And at some point, your body's like, nope, we're not going to deal with this anymore. Yeah. And that's where I think the dog incident just took me to that next level. And that's that was where your, your cup was over full. Absolutely. Point. Yeah. And. I didn't know what to do. You know, I mean, I, you looked at what are the standard modalities of treatment out there are, you know, first route is a counseling, talk therapy, um, EMDR, those type of things. None of them did a damn thing except make me probably even more agitated. Um, you know, every new thing I tried that didn't work for me, uh, just put me into a darker corner. 
you know, and when it starts to affect relationships and people around you, uh, it took that for me to start really pushing the envelope and trying to figure out a true solution to try to address it. How come you didn't think that stuff worked for you? Do you think it just brought up the trauma but didn't deal with it or like kind of just agitated it? Yeah, you know what? You know, how many times can you keep telling us a horrific story of, you know, fatality that I saw or, or my childhood experiences and stuff like that without some kind of, you know, I never walked out of a session going, oh, that, I felt really great for telling that. Mm-hmm. Um, I even, after an EMDR session, I took, you know, I bounced around moving a few places. So I ended up talking to a few different counselors and people like that. And at one point I was in a place in Texas and I asked this woman, I'm like, what is recovery from PTSD look like? And she said, I don't know. And I'm like, what the fuck am I doing here? You know, why are we, what is the point of this exercise? You know, I, I keep hearing this works. Well, wh- how am I supposed to know when this is working for me? And you know, that, that, that just completely turned me off from that, those types of treatments for this type of condition. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it took me going full circle with this stuff to finally truly understand it and to put me in this position that I've somewhat become this, uh, this <laughs> subject, subject matter expert on trauma. Um, but it's just, uh, it's just because I don't want other people to go through the same stuff, trying to reinvent the wheel. Yeah, or have them go through the same struggle you did to try and get healed. Exactly. And, you know, this is where I started to hear those little blips on the radar of psychedelic-assisted therapies and things like that. Um, I think I probably heard it on Rogan's podcast the first time, and then you start hearing a little bit more here and there. And How, how long ago? This was 2017 or 18. Okay. So I spent a good – this is when I was diagnosed. So I, I couldn't tell you what, prior to the dog, my losing Nero, that I probably had some st- – stuff already wrong at that point and just didn't recognize it. It took that, that last little punch to the gut to, I guess, push it to a place that, you know, I knew I needed help. Mm-hmm. You know, everything I was trying and doing was just not helping and just creating it, making a bigger problem. Yeah, I can relate. Um, it's a, you know, I went through the same, the same type of thing you're, you're talking about here where, you know, I went and did talk therapy, um, tried everything right when I first got out. Um, and like, like you said, it does, some of those treatments make it worse. Uh, yeah. and I found, you know, talking to some, which talk, I, I will say talking to somebody does help. I'm not, sure. I'm not uh, saying that's, that's a bad thing, but for me, when, you know, you talk to that person once a week and they're expectant of you, they're expecting you to like, you know, talk about whatever traumas and this and that and, like, what's bothering you. And I would, I'd find myself, like, even when I was doing good, but I had to talk to them, that would ruin my day because I had, it felt like I had to, like, oh, I got to all of a sudden find a problem to talk to you about. And then some of those problems would trigger me back into, you know, whatever state that I was in. So, yeah, almost like you were, like, unearthing it, but you're not actually dealing with it. Yeah, so it's, uh... You know, I've compartmentalized it, um, but you and I probably I didn't want to bring it up because it would put me in a state. Um, so I was like, I'm better off just not talking about it. Yeah, no, I I could totally relate to that. That was yeah. just basically <laughs> you walk out of those sessions and you got you felt no relief. Yeah, 
and I came in feeling okay, and I felt worse. So, and I thought I was doing everything, right? I mean, you're doing what you're told to do. And, and this is what's currently available typically to our, our veterans and first responders is that, that type, those types of therapies, um, which, you know, I'm just going back to what my experience is that you can't treat a, you know, a high-level problem with low-level treatments. And I didn't discover any of this until I ventured into the psychedelic world. Um, there's kind of levels to this game when you're, when you're dealing with this stuff, um, which I didn't know at the time. I think my first experience trying any kind of psychedelic was trying ketamine therapy. Mm -hmm. When I tried that, um, I, I did get some degree of relief. I didn't know what the hell I just did, but I came out of it saying, okay, you know, I'm on something. I, I feel some degree of relief. How long did that last? Not long. Yeah. And this is why, uh, this is where I started to kind of learn this lesson of there's different kind of levels to this psychedelic game. Um, then I did a, a short retreat at um, some doctor's office in um, D.C. that it was kind of a cocktail of ketamine, psilocybin, and MDMA administered over the course of, you know, several hours during the day. Trifecta. And, you know, I was definitely floating around the moon that day. Um, and I came back and I definitely felt a little bit more long lasting effects prior to that, after mm -hmm. that. This is also when I discovered that to do any kind of psychedelic, the importance of doing integration work afterwards. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now when we're talking integration work, it's essentially, you know, I guess somewhat of a counseling session, but with somebody who's got experience with psychedelics specifically. Yeah. Right, you you can't sit down with somebody, just a counselor, and try to put together something that you can't even articulate on a good day. You yeah. know what I mean? So, and I've I've said this several times. I mean, my best description of this is your brain is caught in a loop, a negative loop of thought patterns. Of when you're in PTSD mode, um, you take some psychedelics, and it's basically shaking up a snow globe. And that snow globe has to come to rest somewhere. And really, this is where the integration work comes into play. This is where you have that opportunity to realign your thought patterns and the way you think about how things are uh, and your perceptions of things. I mean, just drinking or drinking, doing psychedelics in general is just one piece of a big picture um, in healing. But you have to put in work. It's not a magic bullet. It's not going to just boom, solve all your problems. You're going to have bad days. You're still going to have to work, but yep. you got to tie it in with some general wellness practices. You have to make some changes in your life and you have to check in with an integration coach uh, to be able to kind of, you know, work through this stuff. Mm -hmm. So the combination of that, that little more extensive journey and some integration work pushed me to another level that I was getting some relief, but I still felt like there was something in there. You know, I just wasn't getting to this next level. And I kept hearing ayahuasca and I kept hearing ibogaine and I kept hearing all the horror stories with ayahuasca and ibogaine because neither of the two are known for being some pleasurable experiences and <laughs> they, are, they are definitely rough. That being said, the other biggest turnoff for me was doing this type of stuff in a group setting. I, I just didn't want to air my shit out 
to the world uh, or in front of a group of people or lose control over a group of people or whatever I was thinking at the time. And that turned out to be completely opposite when I did actually decide to go to uh, a retreat in Costa Rica. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to a place called Rhythmia Life Advancement Center. And when I got down there, I, I really discounted, I guess, the part of the other people there and their healing journeys and how that would affect me. I, you know, initially I was down there kind of really kind of apprehensive about just getting up there and sharing what's going on with me or just being around that. But then I hear all these other stories from people and the, their experiences and things like that. It really checked me a little bit just to kind of find deep down that there is some empathetic part of me that can understand I guess, their struggles and, uh, you know, what led them to go there. You say that as a key piece to it? Yeah, it, it was actually very powerful. Um, another piece of that thing that I didn't really consider, because I, all I did is research the effects of the drug itself, right? I didn't really know anything about any, the wellness part of it, and would be the, the shamanic practices around it and the spirituality around it. Um, I don't really have a religious bone in my body, but I have a spiritual one for sure. I I know enough to acknowledge there's some kind of higher power out there. I just don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. And that being said, when you go down there and you do an ayahuasca ceremony, you've got shamans that are up there. You know, they've been doing this, practicing this, this medicine for hundreds of years in the Amazon regions. And they're up there doing these chants called Icaros, which are supposedly sounds of the jungle that are supposed to draw the effects of the ayahuasca, which is essentially DMT. That's what the active component or that causes the hallucinations and stuff like that. But when you see these people who've dedicated their entire lives to this craft, you know, putting that kind of energy and love into this brew, and it makes the hair on your arms stand up. I mean, you're like, oh, I mean, you, it's the power in that room is palpable. Like you feel that energy. It's nothing I could really explain to anyone who hasn't experienced it. It's just that powerful to be around and to, you know, be a part of. How many How many people were, you think, were in your first setting? Uh, yeah, it was, it's a pretty good-sized group. Yeah. I mean, I think we had about 65-ish. Oh, dang. Oh, yeah. And the <laughs> last gnarly. And the second <laughs> time I went, it was closer to about 80, 80 to 90. And everyone's taking ayahuasca at the same time? Oh, yeah. So, well, they've got a small <laughs> army of uh, – <laughs> Oh, I'll tell you about that one. A uh, uh, small army of helper people kind of cruising around the room, and they are, they're angels. They literally are. I yeah. mean, they're on you before you even know you need help. I mean, there's just shadows in the dark to just show up and, like, you know, make sure, how are you doing, brother? You know, just breathe. You know, and it's just, just, they just show up at the right moment. You know, they just know, and I don't know how it works. I don't know how any of that works, but that, that being said, you know, I spent a week doing this. There are people there. I mean, there are at least a couple women there that had some real heavy sexual trauma type stuff going on mm-hmm. that you you could just could tell these, they, they would have killed themselves had this not turned them around. Like they had that in their voice when they were sharing that they, they've literally gone to the end of their rope dealing with whatever they're dealing with. And by the end of that week, they were different people. They were glowing you know, and I was a different person. I felt lighter, like somebody took a weight off my back. I, yeah. So you, so it was a week long. Yep. 
how many times did you do the ayahuasca in that week? Or can you sort of like yep. describe the process? Sure. So they've got a pretty slick system there. I mean, you, you get there on a Friday or Saturday or Sunday and you go right into uh, breathwork sessions, which if you've never done breathwork, um, that is an amazing experience in itself. If you've done it properly, it could take you to kind of that tr- trance state also just by using your breath. Um, and then also when you're dealing with any kind of psychedelic, if things get hairy or you're feeling weird, the answer is always breathe. Yep. You know, and when people start losing it, it's just, be, just breathe. That's all you need to do. Um, that being said, during the day, they've got a lot of prep classes and, uh, and sharing circles and in yoga and they've got spa things and clean eating and all that stuff. And then they prep you for the night ceremony. You end up doing four ceremonies each night. Different shamans each night, a different brew each night. So the, the ayahuasca itself, you know, some people have got these home-cooked recipes. Or, you know, some of it's like white lightning, and some of it's just like, oh, I don't feel anything. It just really depends on the person. I can, will tell you they all taste terrible. It's like uh, drinking this table. Yeah. Uh, it's wood, woody, smoky, I, just not pleasurable. <laughs> and you're in a room you know, with all these mattresses laid out and pillows and a blanket and you get a bucket. So that bucket is in case you don't make it to the bathroom and you end up vomiting. Uh, they prefer you not vomit on your neighbor and you actually hit the bucket. So purging is That's quite nice a, of them. Yeah. <laughs> purging is a pretty normal thing uh, when you're dealing with, I think to him, Ibo gains the same, but I don't know. Um, I, like you just said, it's different for each individual. Uh, my experience, I, I didn't pu- I didn't move a muscle for 10 hours, they said. And yeah. they were like, you literally had a big smile on your face. And we thought, they said, they said that I flatlined, like, because they had EKGs on yep. us. And they're like, your heart rate was almost flatlined the whole time. And we had to actually, you know, check and see. Yeah. You were, yeah, you were. But then I had individuals next to me, three individuals in the same room. Um, and they were all purging like crazy. Yep. I could hear them, you know. So... What happens is, you know, they bless the medicine, and then you get in a couple different lines, and you know, walk up there. This is very Jim Jones-esque, you know what I mean? Uh, in the back of my mind, I've never done anything like this before, but I'm thinking, this doesn't taste like grape. You know, yeah. I remember, <laughs> it's a little, little strange to be doing this. Anyway, I get up there, you drink it, it's terrible, you go back to your bed, um, and they actually kill all the lights and the music and everything, and it just goes quiet for about... 45-ish minutes to an hour. And you could hear palm trees rustling, and then you slowly start to hear the effects of the medicine coming on to different people. And, you know, your first night, you know, I call it the night of the living dead night because you're hearing all these sounds that are just like, what in the... And they tell you to stay in your lane. I mean, focus on yourself and breathe and don't get caught up in what you hear going on around you because those people are going through their own healing journey, whatever that may be. So you'll have people crying or vomiting or, or needing help or things like that. And when you do that, you literally just got to bring your thoughts back to yourself and breathe. Yeah. But it's easier said than done. I mean, if you've never done anything like this, it's pretty intimidating and you're starting to feel funky under the medicine. And, and then, uh, you know, the, once it kicks in and it's full bore, then they they either start live music or piped in music, and it just kind of goes uh, for several hours. And at some point, 
about two and a half hours, two hours in, they'll ask you if, if you're capable or want some more, you can come take some more. You can come up there and they tell you to drink as much as you can. They want you to go deep while you're there. So, um, is there a limit to how much you can drink? I, honestly, <laughs> I, I've heard of people doing three, sometimes four cups because they were not really feeling the effects. And <laughs> one of those things, like yeah. these aren't working. Let me do some more, and then yeah, oh the old, shit, yeah, the edible story, right? <laughs> yeah. So everyone takes. I don't feel the damn thing, and then they're off to Saturn. You go. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> that being said, yeah, I, I never made it past two cups. And it just got harder and harder every night to even get the second cup down. It was just so hard. Um, and then the next day, you, you're, you go out there, and your people are already looking kind of sheepish and kind of wondering what in the hell they just got themselves into. But I guess what also happens within that group is you become kind of your own support little network. These random strangers you just met the other night become your support crew. I mean, you're you're sharing your deepest, darkest secrets with a room full of strangers, and it's heartfelt. I mean, people aren't bullshitting, and they're not holding back. It's coming out. And, yeah, I mean, that's that's. I even did one of those exercises, you know, and I hate exercises like this. You know, they said, look to your neighbor, you know, look at his eyes for 30 seconds and tell me what you see. You know, it's things like that. You're just like, oh, here we go. And then. I did this with this guy, and he did. He went for looking into my eyes, and he, he said, "What do you see?" And he said, "He said sadness." And man, that 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 fucked me up. I mean, that was just like, you know, this dude. This dude has looked into my soul. You know what I mean? This is like day two. And he's like, I see sadness, and I'm like, I don't even know this guy. I literally met him, you know, a few minutes ago, and. If he could see that in my eyes, you know, that's, there's something going on, right? And I was super apprehensive about going in the first place. This is just so out of my comfort level and and all that stuff. But about two to three weeks prior, I lost another base jumping friend in a wingsuit accident in Moab. Um, my friend Jimmy, and he's literally one of my mentors and one of my favorite people I've ever been around and one of the safest guys you could be around. And when you lose somebody who's, you know, like that, he was one of those energetic personalities that, you know, the ones you feel, you just feel good about being around this person. They're just that positive. And I know he would have told me like, listen, get your shit together. Go make yourself happy again. Don't cry over me. Like, I mean, this is what I'm thinking he would have said to me. And I knew I was doing the right thing by getting on that plane and going to Costa Rica. So that helped me get there for sure. So, yeah, and then each night just got progressively harder. It was just, at me, for me at the time, I didn't get a lot of, uh, I guess, the visual stuff the first trip down there. Mm-hmm. For me, it was emotional. Um, and a lot of it was just the medicine telling me to let go. Was it just, were you just like crying it all out Man, throughout I, the time there? I cried more in that week than I didn't. 30 years mm-hmm. and that medicine tell me to let go changed my outlet completely on all that loss and death and carnage. It turned into an appreciation that I had those people in the, my life, I, that appreciation that I had my dog for those five years. You know, I was lucky to have that happen to me and you know, post, Retreat, you know, in the integration work, I 
I kept kept with that theme, and I guess I had you know, integration coach look told me to look back and and name. Think of five to ten of the worst things that you've ever gone through in your life. Okay, and for each one of those, tell me something positive that came out of those events, and some of them are horrific. You know, I sat. You know, I was a skydiving world record, and I, I attempted to save uh, my team captain who got knocked out in free fall. You know, with three hundred people in the sky, and I followed her to like seven hundred feet. You know, I'm seeing soybeans coming out of this my corner of my eye when she went in, and I deployed and landed next to her, and I sat out there in this soybean field with wondering if any of the three hundred other people saw this, and. I've never sat with somebody's dead body like that. And I'm like, you know, somebody was just there. I'm high-fiving in the plane a few seconds before. And I'm thinking about this. I'm like, why? You know, what possibly good could have come out of this whole thing? You know, and I, I had to really think about things. Of all the traumas, I was, they taught me to be, life is short. You need to enjoy yourself. You need to love people. You need to... You need to really go after life with some vigor. So I would think that's probably what came out of that incident. And if I think about the other ones, you know, they've shaped me to the person I am today. Without those horrible experiences, I wouldn't have started my own companies. I wouldn't have, you know, been been on this path of helping others. You know, I, that just came to me after I went to this thing. And like, I know there's a bunch of people like me that went and tried all these different things, everything under the sun, and when we're talking PTSD, it's not just the, the person who has PTSD, it's the, the, the effects on the family and kids and everybody else involved in that person's life and the ripple effects. You know, that's why I kind of get disgusted when I get, when I see people who I know could use this help, but you see they've taken on this persona that their trauma is, is them. You know, that is not, that doesn't define you. Trauma is just stuff that happened to you. It's how you choose to react to it and deal with it after the fact, I guess, is what's important. Yeah. I found, so the way it was explained to me when I, so I went and did the Ibogaine and they assign you a coach a month ahead of time or, or a counselor. Yep. And I talked to this lady once a week and same, same premise. Uh, they wouldn't tell you what you were going to go through, um, what it was going to be like, but they did give you um, advice on like how to, how to get through it. And a lot of it was the breathing, right? You need to work on your breathing and you need to just let go yep. when, when it's happening. Uh, fortunately for me, uh, I, I grew up a acid monkey. I did a lot of psychedelics in high school, um, <laughs> obviously recreationally, nothing for any benefit, just except sure. to have a good time. Um, so, what, but I knew going into this, um, it was like, okay, I have like, there's an intention behind it. Yep. And I think that's, key like you have to have intent if you're going to go do these this medicine because one as you said it's not fun it's not a good time um but what this lady explained to me is she was like when you are born and just sort of like you said in the beginning you know your age what happens to you when you're between certain ages sort of like what defines how you're going to be um you know when you're born your parents or you know if you're born to two parents they're they're god to you right that you don't know anything else and then you think that, the, you know, they're these perfect human beings. And then obviously they're not. And everybody makes mistakes. Everybody's human. And they start, you know, they might do things that you don't like or 
hurt you in some way. So then you start building an ego right off that. Yep. Uh, it's all right. Now I'm not going to do this. So I don't get this reaction. I'm going to be this way. So I don't see that same reaction again or get hurt again. And obviously as you keep going through life, you, your ego keeps building and you yep. build this, uh, almost like body armor around yep. yourself. Right. And, um, what that medicine d- did for me and what it does for a lot of guys is it cracks that body armor and it, everything that you've built up below it, you know, everything that you're like, okay, I'm not going to think about this. I'm going to do something differently. It exposes you to that. And it's like, here it is. Yep. Deal with it. Um, this is why you are the way you are. And it sort of forces you to work through it. Yeah. And it's, and it's very uncomfortable, but it's a, it's a good thing. Yeah. I mean, you got to be vulnerable. Yeah. And to be vulnerable, I mean, it's a scary place, you know, especially with when we're dealing with military guys and police. <laughs> and our mission is not to be vulnerable, right? I mean, yeah. you're out there, you've got body armor and you've got personal body armor and energy feeds down the stack, right? Mm-hmm. So when you're in the, in the shit, you need to be calm and, you know, we deal with the fear and everything else later. But then, you know, for everyone's safety in the mission, you need to... You know, be focused. You need to be calm and all that stuff. But what you're doing, you're just masking. Well, holy shit, right? <laughs> you're pushing down the real nerves that are in there and you're just trying to blend in. But that doesn't work, you know, outside of that environment. No. And that's why I think a lot of us that do have that trauma when you're younger are sort of driven to those jobs like law enforcement or the military because that type of thinking is accepted there to where it's like, yeah, don't be a pussy. Yep. And we don't care about your emotional, we don't care what you're feeling right now. Just get the job done yep. and suck it up. And so we're, I think a lot of us have built that mentality before we get to the Marine or not Marine the military sure. or law enforcement. Um, and then obviously through years of being in the military, you build up more and more and it just becomes harder for these guys when they get out to crack that. Yep. Yeah, like you said, is when you fill the bucket till it overflows. Yeah. And that's why it catches you off guard, especially when it shows up like that. You know, because of, you know, I've been around fatalities and all those things early on, and you kind of shrugged it off, drank a beer, and you went out and did some more jumping because, you know, that's what your friend would like and all that stuff, and it wasn't a big deal. You know, it, it took a while for it to start to wear, like for me to actually get upset about it and... You know, and then you're, then you're wondering, well, how the hell did this start happening? You know, this didn't bother me before. Why is it bothering me now? And I, I think this is the other thing you got to remember is if you're seeing some horrific things on a regular basis, whether it's in war or a police officer out there in the street, if it starts to become the norm, regular, just like you're punching a clock, um, it's common. You're going to get PTSD down the road. You're just filling this thing that's just, just festering at some point. If you don't deal with that, it's going to come out. And this is why, I w- you know, in the perfect world, I would love to find some kind of way to have a little more proactive approach um, and getting kind of like a psychedelic transition programs f- out there for um, first responders and, and military. So we're not dealing with guys at the end of the rope. You know, I mean, we get guys that are literally – steps away from killing themselves because they're over it and they're coming into our program and we're trying to turn this around you know it would be nice to come from the other end when it hasn't fully blown up into crisis mode you haven't destroyed the family uh, you haven't destroyed relationships or jobs and we can right the ship before it goes you know red lines into the ground yeah and you know nobody's impervious to this i mean this 
anybody can get PTSD. You know, I don't care how tough you are. It doesn't matter. You know, it'll break down the, the strongest person. Um, and it's just not a good way to live. You're hollow. You're not present. You can't love. You can't experience the beauty in life or the small things. And, you know, that's a big deal. If you take all that stuff away, what, what is your existence? Do you think a lot of people out there don't know that it's trauma? Like they haven't identified it as they're just thinking, oh, like I don't know why this stuff's coming up. I have always oh, dealt with it. For sure. Or, 100%. I mean, that, well, I think that's part of the cycle is, and I, I was just like what you said. Like I was like, I don't, I don't have any problems, but I'm a miserable person. Yeah. Like I'm miserable to be around, but I don't have anything wrong with me. At least, you know, you're not self-aware. You have... And I think you, at least for me, I spent so much time being situationally aware. Like, okay, I, I know what to do if something happens, or like I'm, I'm constantly, you know, you know, looking around or whatever. Uh, but self awareness was zero. And so, yeah, you know, word. yeah, my wife had to, you know, Andrea had to literally sit me down, and she was like, "You have no emotions except for anger, or you're normal." And she's like, this is what it means to be sad. And she was like a little child. And I'm looking at her like. She's got a chart. Yeah. She's like, what does this face mean, yeah, Eddie? My, my youngest son, Ryan, and I are both like on the same emotional chart. We're like both learning at the same time. But that's what that medicine did for me as well is yeah. it got me more in tune with my emotions and how to deal with them. Yeah. Yeah. And again, you just had a loss of words as to why. And I think, you know, we're just now starting to figure out the whys. You know, that it's, there's some things that, uh, that happen when you take psychedelics that allow that healing to occur and that all makes sense. And I think this is where psychedelics were going back in the you know, late 60s, early 70s before, you know, the LSD thing got out of hand and taking unknown doses in large crowds, which would never be a positive thing anyway. But, uh, you know. But they, were, they were doing studies back then for the Vietnam vets. And yeah. that was being pushed. Uh, I remember my dad because he came in right at the tail end of Vietnam and was telling me that. Yeah, it was something that was being looked into, and then it completely got shut down. Yeah, um, Big Pharma. Yeah, big Pharma, yeah. And then this is what we're up against here today. I mean, we've got, you know, the active component in ayahuasca, DMT, is a Schedule One drug. We can't do that here. Mm-hmm. You know, we're getting closer. We've got um, organizations out there like MAPS that just completed Phase Three trials on uh, MDMA, for psychedelic-assisted therapy. Um, and I think they're studying psilocybin, too. But the problem with this, and as I see it, is we could legalize this tomorrow. And you've got 100,000 people trying to get into these programs. Who's going to administer this stuff? Who's going to provide the integration coaching? Who's going to provide the set and setting? You know, when mm-hmm. I'm saying who's going to... Set and setting is so important. It's like who's administering this medicine and... And where, where are you doing it? Is it a comfortable, warm retreat setting, or is this a clinical environment? You know, and if you think about the masses when we've been at war for 20-plus years that need this, not this is not even taking into account the law enforcement community, which, you know, I would venture to say some of those guys are worse. Yeah. Oh, with, for sure. With the, vo- the volume of carnage that they see on a daily basis is just astronomical and you know, then you've got, they're getting beat down from the media, beat down from the public, and beat down from every angle, including their own commands. You know, I don't know who would do this, that job. Um, I applaud the ones that do and that, that do it well. Um, but it is, it is very a thankless 
and in nature. And that's, this is why I think, you know, a lot of those guys need that too. And we really need to look at, you know, everybody wants this perfect policing model. Okay. What does that look like? We got to take care of them on the job. You know, they can't be running skinny, you know, defund the police. So we should be hyper funding the police. If you truly want professionals, you pay them well, you support them, you give them all the assets. Um, your time yeah. in the SEAL teams. I mean, you've got assets. You had things behind you powering those units. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I work with police canine units around the country. Some of them are extremely well-funded, and some of them are literally selling T-shirts to buy leashes. And this isn't the way it should be. I mean, if it's putting people, it's putting the dogs in danger. If they're not getting proper training, uh, stress inoculation, and actually doing work that would make them safer officers on the street, uh, we make it harder for them by putting the onus on them to train to a certain level versus a level that they should be at just by nature of their job. They're a specialized unit. They're not treated like one. Yeah. And that's why, you know, I've, I've got that other company working with those units doing that stuff. That's awesome. Um, so you, once you did that first ayahuasca retreat, yep. you, you come back from that. Is that when you decided to, uh, Start the Warriors Healing Network? Yeah. So I got back from that, and it absolutely blew my socks off. I came back. I knew I had to do something with this. I, I had to reach out to the other people that were in the same boat I was in and say, listen, this is an option, and it's legit. Um, you know, like I said, it's legit for the people who want to put in the work, who people understand that this is just part of a tool and overall healing, but this works. How do people take that? Were they like, uh, I don't know about that. Well, I mean, you're kind of going to get that anywhere you go. When you're dealing with psychedelics, you got to kind of consider your audiences and also consider what you're sharing. You know, do I need to tell them about all, every crazy visual I've ever seen? No. But, you know, we can give them the cliff notes and get them, take them to the end. But, you know, I think the proof's in the pudding. And there's enough people who have gone through these programs. I mean, there's a couple other uh, charities in this space. One's called Vet Solutions. Um, yeah, that's who it? I went through. Yeah. Marcus Capone yeah. and those guys are. Yeah, Marcus and Amber. The yep. Great, um, great people. I'm actually going to um, the MAPS conference in Denver in June. I believe he's going to be at that, so hopefully I'll get to meet him. But you know, they're a little narrow in scope as far as who they support, so a lot of the Tier 1 operators are kind of access to that. And I think Heroic Hearts might be a little more broad. Um, we just opened it up to combat veterans and police officers with PTSD uh, because I've got a Obviously, I work with police a lot, so I want to make sure that they were included in that in that group. But, yeah, I got some people together. Got my integration coach on board with our board. I got a physician who happens to be my neighbor. I also happen to have now a, um, a psychiatrist who works on the MAPS project out of MUSE in, in South Carolina, and she's also on our board. <laughs> So we're, we're just starting to slowly assemble this thing. I've got two other veterans that are both Marines that are on my board, uh, both of them who have experience doing psychedelics to kind of turn their lives around. So, you know, between all of us, we were able to, you know, we haven't even been around a full year yet, and we funded two guys to go down there um, last fall. And for both of them, it's been game-changing. Um, both, both of them completely turned their lives around, uh, you know, patched up a whole lot of, garbage in their life and turn everything back into a positive. And, you know, we're in the midst of 
you know, trying to raise more funds to send more, you know, I mean, I would love to have some giant infusion of cash, but it's not the way it works in the yeah. 501 world. You mm -hmm. got to keep scraping at it. Um, so we've got Eddie and Andrea of, you know, going to donate their time to come up and help with our events. We've got next week, we've got yeah. a dinner to end uh, police and veteran suicide, just an awareness dinner more or less. And then the second day we're going to do that operator for a day. Uh, just do some cool shooting at a buddy's private range and, uh, just have some fun. Yeah. What what ideally is like the perfect setup? So to because it's it's not and both of y'all said this, um, Eddie. You've told me this before too. It's you know the the therapy does it opens it up right. It, it breaks through that ego barrier. It breaks through to you, but then there's the integration part, and then there's just the general the, the like life of like getting healthy, getting in line, like yep. all those things. What would be the perfect setup for that? Like. Well, well, obviously, before you do anything like this, you need to qualify for it, meaning there are some things that can bounce you out of this. If you can't safely come off an SSRI or an antidepressant, that can cause havoc. So we have to make sure medically you can do it. Mm -hmm. They're not set up to be detox centers. Mm -hmm. So if you're alcoholic or you know those type of things, you can't do that, or schizophrenic. Mm -hmm. uh, that being said, if you qualify for it, you should do some prep work with an integration coach, meaning learn how to do some breathing Already you start working on your diet. You know, they have a thing called dieta, which is what it sounds like. It's a diet that you, you're cutting out. <laughs> Fancy word for diet. <laughs> yeah. El dieta. They uh, basically, you're cutting out things that can interfere with the medicine. Um, so you want to go down there. You want to maximize your experience. You want to prep it. Um, learn how to breathe in case things get funky, which they will. And then uh, the integration work is really focusing on being in the present, you know, I, I, with all the shit that's going on today, um, God, you turn on any garbage new, news outlet or whatever, just even for half a second, it could ruin your day. That being said, can I stop the war in Ukraine? No. And can I be upset about it? Yeah. But am I going to let that destroy what's immediately in front of me? You know, I, immediate in front of me is, you know, people that I love or my animals or just having a, enjoy a walk with my dog out in the forest, you know, and, and appreciating nature and things like that. I can, I can do that. I can control that. Um, if I get sucked down a rabbit hole of, you know, everything that's going wrong in the world, I mean, you can be a miserable person. And that's kind of where I was before. And I think Eddie mentioned being like situationally aware. Like mm -hmm. the reason I watched all that crap is trying to figure out, well, God damn, what, what is this going to lead to? And what do I need to be ready for? Right. With the next race riot or war or whatever horrific thing that's going out there or pandemic or whatever you want. What is the next thing that I have to be prepared for so I don't get caught flat footed? You can't live like that. You're in the highest state of vigilance, which is a common, you know, symptom of PTSD of being you can't be in that operational mode 100 percent all the time. It's just impossible. Um, so when you learn to appreciate what you can control and focus on being in the now as much as you humanly possible. And you're going to have off days for sure, but it's how you deal with it. And having that support of an integration coach will help you kind of make sense of that and maybe talk through it and think about it from a different angle or different perspective you might not have thought of before. You know, how many billion people are here on the earth? And each one of us in this moment in time is having one completely different life experience. 
You guys are looking at me. I'm looking at you guys. So it's a completely different experience, but it's also perception. You know, somebody living in a slum in Bangladesh is not having the, the good day as we are sitting right here in this air-conditioned room, right? So you see how things ebb and flow across the earth and how these things arise um, that are problematic out there. There's a good to have an understanding of it, but not get fixated on it. You know, I think for me, it's just, I was so fixated on every shit thing that was going on. And, you know, the pandemic sure as hell didn't help. You know, this, there's nothing adding up for me through that entire period. I'm like, what in the hell? I think all the, the quiet parts <laughs> of U.S. politics became out in the open. And you're just shocked to know that this is just the way it is. And it's probably always been, but the level of crazy was through the roof, right? So, <laughs> And it keeps getting crazier. Yeah, yes. It's just, the hits just keep on coming. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think that's the best scenario for the integration part anyway. Yeah, I think, well, Go ahead. yeah, I think they're definitely, so vets who I went through, you know, like I said, they assigned you a counselor a month ahead of time. Uh, when I went, you spent a day, a day after, and they're like going through like, hey, this is how you keep it going, right? right. Like this is how you stay in this state because – once you do, I know I, I can't speak to ayahuasca because I've never done it, but the Ibogaine, it, you have this glow afterwards. Yep. And it, that glow lasts in, for a couple months, you know. Um, Same. Yeah. But that glow will die out, right? And you're going to be smacked in the face with reality again. And uh, I think they've now keep guys, and you know, I think four or five days after now to, like, work on, like, hey, this is yeah. the type of work you need to do afterwards. And what I've seen, because I did it three years ago, um, I haven't done it since it was, you know, one and done. Um, but I've seen guys constantly go back Yeah, and I'm like, okay, well, where is the benefit in constantly needing to go back and doing this? I'm like, and I think that's where they were like, okay, we need to do, do more for these guys once they do it the first time and yeah. help them, um, keep it going. So they don't have to go back all the time. Uh, yeah. and also the other danger I've seen is, this is typical of any team guys or special operators is they do it once and then all of a sudden they're a shaman and they're yeah. like out there promoting it and like, Oh, this is, and I'm like, you're literally ruining it for yeah. everybody right now. Cause it's not, yeah. you're not a shaman. You don't know what the hell you're talking about just because you did one psychedelic. And, yeah. uh, I think that needs to be put to an end. There's enough guys. And I tell guys when they go do it, I'm like, do not talk about, any of your stuff right afterwards. Cause yeah. I, you, you do have that feeling. You're like, I'm, a, I've been enlightened. Like you're like, yes. I see now and you want to tell everybody about it. But it's like, my advice to them is like process what you yes. just went through and keep it to yourself until you can process it. Yeah. Cause if you, like you said, you're out there talking, you sound like a crazy person. Oh yeah. yeah. And yeah, maybe slow down some big life decisions immediately following. Yeah, like exactly. let, let it sink in a little bit first. I think for me, I think if you feel called to do it again, there's probably more work that's needs to be done. Yeah. And for me, I, I think the second time was probably good. Um, and this is where, I mean, this is where, you know, like I mentioned in the beginning, we were talking about doing these high level, you know, treatments kind of knock that blockage upstream, you know, maybe these other little ones would work. So maybe at this point, if I started some EMDR or, I felt the need to do other talk therapies. Maybe at this point I'm in a much better place to do so because I'm yeah. not addressing the bigger problem at hand, which 
takes some un- discomfort to get to. So this is where it's kind of flipped. Yeah. And it's going to be different for everybody. Uh, and this is why you maybe hear of people having just talk therapy and it helps them. Well, that's great. But you know what I mean? I think the other thing you got to remember is a lot of guys get caught up in this comparing trauma thing. It's like you don't think your trauma is worthy of having PTSD or having the same level of sympathy from somebody. Yeah, that's a very common thought. Like my, I mean, it's the same with anybody when they get out of the military and you're putting in for disability. Yep. I tell guys, I'm like, hey, you should be getting 100%. And they're like, well, I'm not missing any limbs. Yeah. And I'm like, it doesn't matter, dude. Like you will, like you will have repercussions, especially, you know, the guys that I served with over the past 20 years. I'm like, it's coming. Yeah. And you're going to wish that you put in that for that 100%, you know. Yeah, you're not doing anybody any favors by holding same, back. Yeah, right? it's the same, but it's the same premise. Like, well, I'm not I'm not bad off as that guy, so don't yeah. worry about me. Exactly. Which, again, th- you got to look past yourself. This, is, this involves your family, your loved ones, yep. and everybody around you, that ripple effect. And this is why if you don't do it for yourself, you better do it for everyone else. Um, but were you married when you got out? Were you uh, married at that time? No, I wasn't. Okay. Um, I was say, did any of your like close friends or, or people like, Oh my gosh, like you're a different person. Oh, you're talking from the retreat. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, yeah. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't talk to them about that. I mean, but I'm sure they're pretty surprised to see me, you know, running a five one charity <laughs> to try to help others. And, um, yeah, my, my, my wife will attest to it. I, I know she will. She knows the work I've put in. She knows where I've come from. Um, you know, it was hard for both of us, for sure. Oh. You know, it's a big step to take, you know, to go, <laughs> I'm going to get on a plane, and I'm going to go drink a bunch of ayahuasca in Costa Rica. How does that sound? <laughs> 60 people in a room. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what, could go, what could possibly go wrong with this? So I'm like, that's kind of how I've done all my big decisions in life. I'm usually like, fuck it, let's see what happens. That's my... <laughs> Those are my words of <laughs> due diligence and wisdom <laughs> before I make a big decision, right? So, I mean, I've never been through it. I, I ran, I was a counselor previously, and I, I ran um, addiction homes yep. out in Dallas for years. But I can just tell you from just knowing Eddie, which when Eddie, I mean, the change I've seen in him over the last three years is like night and day, yep. you know? I mean, I have trauma from seeing Eddie, being around Eddie three years ago. <laughs> <laughs> you, so, and, you and everybody else. Yeah, uh, I, need, yeah. I need to Stand go Stand in line. It. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's... It's, it's a, it's, I think it's, I, I think one of the things is, it's, it's just, it's a psychedelic. And it, I mean, it's almost like pot 20 years ago. It's like pot, like, oh my gosh, like drugs. Yeah. Like, absolutely, you know, and just a mindset changing around that. I don't, and... But it's not the thing with this is therapeutic use. This isn't hey, let's go trip in yeah, a room sure. in Costa Rica. It, this is a therapeutic use specifically for trauma, yep. um, and opening it up. And it's not a this solves all. This overcomes what you can't. Because would you say previous to doing it um, and trying other stuff, it's almost like you're. St- like you said, stuck in a loop, or you're like almost stuck, can't get past that trauma to really grow in other areas of life, or like it's it's a feel when you've got something deep in there, mm-hmm. you're not coming out with it because your ego's blocking that. 
for, I mean, if you're with any kind of therapy session with any therapist anywhere in the world, you've got to build a rapport and some kind of trust before you're truly sharing everything, okay? Everyone says, oh, I'm telling you everything. Well, you're not. Yeah. You know, it's human nature. You're holding back. Um, but when that comes out, it's just you and the medicine you're having this conversation with for the most part. And then after that, you're dealing with somebody who's got experience who felt the same way you did, yeah. which, you know, there's not a whole lot of people that can say they've done these things um, just because of you know, or access issues here in the U.S. and pharma not getting their hands on it. But that being said, you know, I got tired of seeing this 22-a-day thing and people doing push-ups on TikTok and nobody doing shit really to actually help. And, you know, I've helped two guys so far and we're just getting started. And can I help everyone? No. But I'm going to do my damnedest to help the ones I get my hands on you know, that come through our program or just want help or want questions answered. I, I want to make sure if this is the right path for them. I'll tell people if there's not the right path for them, for sure. But if I think they could benefit from it, I would absolutely help these people as much as I can. And that, that's just something that I felt the need to do when I got back. I, I just didn't want that knowledge of all of this to go anywhere. You know, knowing the levels to the game in the within psychedelics, knowing trauma stacking, how it snuck up on me and how it's probably sneaking up on you and all those type of things. And, you know, it's, nobody has that much of a unique story. The trauma is trauma, right? No matter what it is, it's just at some point your body's just like not having it anymore and you've got to do something drastic. And, and this is, in my book, pretty drastic, but necessary and effective. Yeah. Would you say there's some levels of trauma that, I mean, talk therapy, cognitive, behavioral, or like any of those that can help and can get through, but then... If there's deeper levels or... And this is my guess. You know, I'm not a psychiatrist. Sure. I don't have MD behind my name. I'm, I'm telling you from my experience um, and the experience of everyone that I've talked to, generally speaking, people who come through our program or anyone that I've heard gone down this road has tried other modalities first. The same stuff. And yep. it did nothing for them, right? And, you know, if that wasn't such a universal message, then I would know, you know... Maybe I wasn't be so sure about this, but I'm pretty damn sure that, you know, for deep-seated traumas and the traumas that you're going to find in a combat zone or being a law enforcement officer, um, I'm very familiar with that. those. I know what that looks like. You know, when you see death and carnage up close and it just becomes a thing, um, you know, that affects you. You know, it just, you know, and you can't hide behind this, this iron-clad ego shield anymore it just starts breaking things down and it's going to ruin your life and everyone around you how does it look like sneaking up on you like it, when you say it's like i used to deal with this you you mentioned it like i used to handle all this stuff but like things aren't working i'm angry i'm i, I just i'm restless irritable discontent i'm a little like, bit I all that yeah for me it was very um i guess removed not present just kind of hollow um, and then also the easy agitations from zero to freaking, you know, want to murder everybody type, type anger that's over th stupid little things that shouldn't be causing that. And again, unfortunately, that gets directed at the people that you love typically, and, it, and it's just not a good place to be. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's, it's going to vary by person, but for me, those type of thing and the hypervigilant thing, right? I mean, that's just, you know, they come out of the military, you've got kind, kind of that you know, sizing, sizing the room up or the th potential threats, you know, primary, secondary, third, you know, all those type of things. Like when you're doing that at a freaking restaurant, you know, and you catch yourself doing it, you know, you're not 
overtly doing it, but you're doing it, catching yourself doing it. You shouldn't, that's not the place, right? I mean, it's good to have, you know, there's good things to take away from those things, but that's not the state you should be in uh, 24-7 when you're just living your life. I love how Eddie said, you're situationally aware, you're not self-aware. Yeah, Yeah. that's definitely what, uh, what I came to realize, you know, but it took doing the medicine to really, I mean, I would have never thought that. And, you know, I, I was told that by numerous people, like including my wife, like this is what your issue is. And that's the other thing. We're all stubborn. And I'm like, (laughs) you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Like I will do this my way. And then that medicine literally shows you like, okay, yeah, everybody, everybody's been telling me is right. There's some truth to it, but I needed it was so deep rooted in me not to like listen to anybody else that that medicine opened that up for me. And I'm like, okay, now I see. And like you said, after you do the medicine, that's where the real healing starts. Then you can start working on yourself uh, because you're more vulnerable. It's like the stuff that you do afterward was ineffective previous to it. Almost had to do that stuff so that those things could be. Yeah. For me, at least. And, you know, it's, I think it's different for everybody. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. And I, like you said, it, this medicine is not for everyone. And I'm not one of those people, and I've heard it, everybody should be on psychedelics and everybody should take this. No, no. I don't think so. Um, I, I think it should be done with a purpose and intent behind it. Um, and, like, I'm glad, you know, that you guys are screening people before they go um, and making sure that they're the right candidate for this medicine. Yep. Because that's huge as well. And I, I think as time goes on, you know, as, as far as talking about, you know, the um, weirdness when you bring up psychedelics, people are like, Ugh, you know, it's been demonized for so long, just like marijuana was demonized yeah. for so long, that it, it's rooted in everybody to think that psychedelics is like this bad drug. When in reality, now they're, you know, they're coming out with stuff. It's like it's not addictive. Um, it's literally has barely any side effects um you come out of it and you're that's it you're done um but i think what's going to have to happen because i just went to tallahassee last week to talk to a congress there about getting it funded a study funded in florida for it um and the big problem is they're like well where's the data like we need data because nothing is going to get approved without that sure um and this is why unfortunately i think our organization and others like us are going to be around for quite a while because you know, we just don't have, you can't turn around that ship that quickly. It's got to work its thing. And th- this is stuff that makes you really, really angry is you understand why all that stuff went away, all the psychedelic studies and all that stuff and why, you know, weed was illegal for all these you know, years, you know, even though it killed 0.0 people to date, but we're killing thousands of opioids. Um, is the politics and the money behind the money. it all. Yeah. yeah. Just so follow the money. When you realize that's the barrier, that makes you really angry when you're thinking the lives lost and the people who've given it all um, so we could live in the you know, relative comfort of this country, you know, to be able to eat a gun in a VA parking lot because not a damn thing worked for them. And I think that sucks. That's just, you know, that's just not fair um, to treat people who've, put it out there like that. And I, that's really what I'm just trying to work on as best, best I can and our organization can. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, I, I feel like <clears throat> my experience at least with the VA is, you know, you you were, I was dependent on the government for 21 years during my whole service, just like the rest of us are. You're, that's where you get your paycheck from. That's who's yep. providing 
you know, your place of work. Uh, sometimes, you know, we lived in military housing. They provided a home for my family. And when you get out, the government still wants you dependent on them. And the way they can get you dependent on them is to get you on all these pharmaceuticals and opioids. And that way yep. they have you. Now you're a patient for life until you decide to take it. Yeah. You know, um, and that's the dangerous route that seems to be that has been normalized over the past I don't know how many years. Um, And I think the reason there's so much pushback on the psychedelics or the other um, types of treatment that are um, not uh, of the norm, I guess, is because they know some of these things work and get people off psychedelics or get people off pharmaceuticals, get them off alcohol, um, and that they're going to lose money. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think there's good people in the VA. They're trying their best. It's just a system that's overrun. Yeah. And poorly managed and just like anything else when people need help now you know that they can't wait you know they are culpable in some of this stuff you know i know three people personally who had un- undiagnosed tbis who have very similar symptoms to ptsd that were giving uh, antidepressant drugs like xanax or whatever and it causes almost instant uncharacteristic suicidal thoughts and all three of them almost ate a gun luckily all three of them are still alive but to hear that not once, twice, three times of people I personally know, I said, that is a big part of what's going on with this suicide epidemic that's going on, you know, because they, nobody's going to spring for an MRI to see if you have a TBI in there, if they're going to go down the road of prescribing these things, right? And that's just a money issue or resource issue within yeah. the VA. So, you know, we've got, things are broken all over the place. There's some still good people in the world that are out there trying to do the right thing and help any way they can. And, and really that's all we're about right now is just trying to do what we can yep one step at a time man that's it that's it that's all you can do and exactly. you'll, you'll make it'll make a difference yep. um you know if you're fighting against a big machine yep. and when you're doing something like that yeah it's it's just like uh, what's that how do you eat an elephant you know one, one bite, bite at, at a time, time. Yep. And eventually you'll get there um you know i'm excited you know obviously andrew and i are coming down yep. uh next weekend to support uh the warriors healing network um hopefully raise some awareness and raise some money for you guys um, because, you know, obviously our foundation is, you know, our pillar is a little bit different. Uh, we, you know, we protect or we're, they're helping the uh, active duty military law enforcement first responders when they're being unjustly accused. But we definitely um, have a huge heart for helping these individuals after they're, they go through that experience because, you know, the people that we help, yeah, we and we have a hundred percent success rate so far, which you know, thank God. Yeah. Um, but it's like their fight's not over after that either. It's like, dude, they just got done getting smeared by the media. Yeah. Um, you know, usually because of that, half the country thinks one way of them, um, even though it's not the truth. So there's a lot to deal with and unpack there, and so it's a great avenue to send, got you know, men and women, like, hey, here's a resource that can help you heal and get you back on track. Yeah. So, yeah, we're, we're excited to have you up. I mean, it's just, it'll be a good weekend, um, but we're getting there little by little. You know, we're smaller, 501, and we'll eventually get there. And if uh. I help one person a year, that's better than zero. Mm-hmm. So we're just going to do what we can. I mean, that's all we can do. So, If I'm a pol- former police officer, I guess current as well, uh, or military, and I want um, – recognize hey i have trauma deep-seated trauma i want help how do they get a hold of you how do they get connected yeah anybody wants to go through our program they they could just fill out an application through our website warriorshealingnetwork.org 
Um, and everything's done through confidence. You know, I mean, if, you know, if somebody's on the force right now and they want to get that, that stuff, we can work with that because, you know, obviously that's something that's not on a normal drunk panel. And I'm not really, I don't really care about that law either. I care about saving their life and helping their families and helping them stay on the job and be productive. So, you know, we'll do everything we can to help them within whatever confines they've got. Um, but, uh, yeah, these treatment grants, they run around, you know, if we have to pay for everything from A to Z, you know, around 10 grand a pop. So they're not, ex- not cheap. Um, that being said, you know, it, it's worth it. And for what we're seeing, it's, we're getting, you know, so far we're batting a hundred too. And we want to keep that streak up and try to just help everyone we that get into our program. Where can people donate as well on that? Uh, yeah. At warriorshealingnetwork.org. We've got a donation link. Um, we could you do any kind of donation you want, or if you even have a loved one specifically, you want to donate to sponsor a person to get this treatment. Obviously, they need to qualify and then also be on board with it. But if that's the case, you know somebody who's struggling out there and want to make a donation to sponsor them specifically, we could also work with that. So um, we're trying to expand some of the stuff to include uh, spouses, at least part of the integration work. So they can kind of get a little understanding of what their husbands or, or vice versa or spouses are going through, going through these things and, uh, and address that during these programs. And, you know, we're learning as we go and we'll definitely keep refining and we'd like to, you know, someday expand out to having support groups and then retreats stateside and things like that. So we've got a lot of, a lot of things planned, but right now we're just <laughs> the initial hurdles are just getting the next person that needs help. And we already have, I've got two people queued up within the last week that I just got, you know, in our inbox, you know, talking about they want to go through our program and we're doing some initial screening on them. So we'll see what we could do for them. That's awesome. That's <clears> awesome. <throat> yeah. Well, hey, man, I appreciate you coming down here, coming on the podcast and just talking yeah. about the Warriors Healing Network. And I appreciate all the work that you're doing for our law enforcement and uh, active duty and just military in general. Yep. Um, I think there's a lot more work to be done for sure. Um, but like, as long as we're all fighting for the same same cause, I think we're gonna make a dent for sure. Yeah. Um, the last the last phase of this is some gun therapy, which y'all are about to. That's do. right. Yeah, yeah, we're gonna go get on the range for the yeah. next two days. It'll be good. Pretty excited. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Thank you. Well, thank you guys. All right. All right. Out. Out.